0: a very important word that comes in the doctrine, practice and dispensational teaching of the Apostle, the form of sound words which he has taught us, and that is the word flesh. It won't be a very easy subject to deal with, but it's a very essential one, because we shall find it running through his epistles. And if we haven't got the right idea of it, we may miss a good deal of teaching. You will notice at the bottom of the chart in front of you, Uh, that the whole of the second half is devoted to this word, divided into two parts. We're going to consider, first of all, the general way in which it is used by the Apostle, and then we'll look at the specific passage in the Epistle to the Romans, where it runs through as a part of the very pattern of his teaching. The Greek word for flesh is sarx, S-A-R-X. It comes in the word sarcasm, which means to tear the flesh. So when you're a bit sarcastic, don't forget it's a cruelty. There may be this, the figure of, of eerily, where you take the mickey out of somebody gently, that's another matter. Uh, but sarcasm can be cruel. Now the word flesh goes right from the earliest and most primitive meaning, that is to say, your human body, right down to the very seat of iniquity, which we fight against and find is so overwhelmingly strong. So let's now, for our own sakes and for the sake of the fact that some of you are listening, are teaching others, let's get some idea of the use of this e- extraordinary word. First of all, we'll look at Ephesians chapter 5 30, for there it will mean just what we need in the ordinary, everyday conversation. We don't speak all the day long, in doctrinal terms. So we have in Ephesians 5, uh, verse 30, for so we are members of His body, of His flesh, and of His bones. Now that is a that is a extract from the book of Genesis, the words that Adam is said when Eve was presented to him. It just means the human body. It has no reference to whether it's good or bad. And I don't think we need to dwell much upon that, for that is the obvious and the basic and first meaning. And then, of course, it is the word which has to cover the the whole of the animal kingdom. And you remember, of course, that man, spoken from one point of view, is an animal. If ever you listen to the widest, when they have animal, vegetable or mineral, uh, they ask, "Is it an animal?" Yes. Has it got two legs?" Yes. Or well, then it becomes possibly that it's a man or a woman, you see, or a child. Well now you get that in 1 Corinthians 15. So should we just acquaint ourselves with the fact that it covers not only mankind but the whole of animal creation? 1 Corinthians 15 verse 39. He's speaking there of the resurrection but he's drawing attention to the fact that God gives to every seed a body, and to every seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. So there are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial. And the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, and even one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. And while we have this passage before us, you will see in verse 50 another use of the word where it's combined with flesh and blood. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God neither does corruption inherit incorruption. There he's speaking of man who has borne the image of the earthy, who is spoken of as being in Adam, and as such, it's not possible for that man, unchanged, to enter glory. So he says, I show you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So you see, the apostle uses it in quite a number of ways already before us. Well now there's a word in John 17, which we must look at. It's in that great prayer of our Savior, John 17. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son may also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, all flesh, there's no discrimination there, doesn't say all believers, it says all flesh, As thou hast given him power over all flesh, with this object, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. So, he's been given all power in heaven and earth, all power over all flesh, so that those who were given to him shall be sure of the reception of everlasting life. So again, you see, all flesh can mean all mankind. But it could also mean kinship. Not merely all mankind, but of your same kin. Let's look again at that heading. Uh, Romans the ninth chapter. Romans the ninth chapter. Here the apostle is speaking of his own people, the people of Israel. I say the truth in Christ I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness. And continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now he's not saying the flesh is good or the flesh is bad. He's simply saying I'm speaking now of my kinsmen. He could have said that everybody is one of my kinsmen, whether they're Jew or Gentile in Christ. But in Christ there's no neither Jew nor Gentile neither bond nor free but all one but he's not speaking like that and he says no according to the flesh I am a Jew I am one of Israel and I'm speaking about those who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises whose are the fathers all those belong to Israel now and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came. That's true, isn't it? He was born at Bethlehem, at the city of Judah. He was born of Mary, who was a descendant of David. So according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all God, the blessed forever. If you look at chapter 1 to see this same thing, in connection with the person of Christ, And we're very much concerned about that in this meeting. He says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. So he was of Israel according to the flesh. But he was God over all. So it says here, And declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection of the dead. So, you see, we have to think of Christ from two angles. The flesh, a man. The flesh, of the line of David. But he was God manifest in the flesh, and the two make one Christ. So, you see, this word has got several connotations, and it's wise for us to keep them in mind. Now, chapter 11 of Romans Chapter 11 of Romans, verse 14. He says to them, you know, it's a great puzzle to some of Israel and it's a great problem to some of you that the people of Israel are chosen and elect people are going. Blindness is happening unto them. And he says, it's all known to God. He says in verse 11, have they stumbled that they should fall? Oh, no, he said. There's no word God here, you know, God forbid, it's an oath. Uh, There's no word God forbid here, it says, me, Ganoite, says, oh, let it not come to this, oh, don't don't think like that, you see, but we have to read what it says. But rather, through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles. So God could overrule the very fall of Israel to bring light to the Gentiles, but he had the Israeli view all the time, to provoke them, that is Israel, to jealousy. So that if the Jews said, look, these outcast Gentiles are now speaking with tongues and raising the dead and working miracles, what have we been losing? So you see, there is that at the same time. Oh, come right in, we're so glad to see you. That's good. We are dealing with the use of a very important word in the Apostles' teaching. We've just been considering some of its usages. And if you'll look at the chart, if you can see it where you are, under that heading, "Salt's flesh, we have seen that it can be used just for the human body we possess. It can be used for all mankind. It can be used for those who are our kin, Israel, according to the flesh. And then we have ordinary human nature. Would you look at Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. He says earlier than this, He says earlier than this in verse 10, For it became him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. They're all of one. Now look what he says in verse 14 of Hebrews 2. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, the order of the word strangely enough in the original is the other way around here. Partakers of blood and flesh. Makes no difference. We are so used to saying flesh and blood that we look at it as strange. There's another way in which the uh, human nature is spoken of is flesh and bones. And you'd be surprised to discover that that's the usual expression in the Old Testament. Flesh and bones. It's the first thing that he said When Adam looked at his wife, he said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He never said anything about blood. But it would be very idiotic to say that he was looking at Eve and said, I think you're a bit anemic, you haven't got any blood, that's nothing to do with it. So Judah came to David and said, thou art our bone and our flesh. Now it's put the other way around, blood and flesh. Sometimes it's put flesh and blood. It all comes to the same thing, this use of the word in scripture. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. So the word was made flesh. He took part of the same. He stooped to become a man. And in that body he offered himself without spot to God. But through death, so he had a body in which he could die. It's a very extraordinary thing to think he's the only man that has ever come into this world with the purpose of dying. Man dies. He comes into the world and he dies. But he didn't come into this world on purpose to die. But this one did, in order that he might die the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. That he himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage, for verily he took not not on him the nature of angels. He took on him the nature of man. Because the children were flesh and blood, he became flesh and blood. Angels are not flesh and blood, he passed them. Well, then we have also a passage in the um, the first epistle of John, chapter 4, I think we'll take all these that we've looked out because they give us this is outside of course Paul's teaching but he would not be uh, saying that this isn't true <coughs> the first epistle of John chapter 4 now you remember in the early church there had those who stood up in the meeting and spoke under the inspiration of a spirit now the apostle wrote to them saying, he said hey, you wait a minute he said, don't forget there's an evil spirit as well as a good one Satan knows his work and he will get his own speakers in your meeting and lead you astray. And they said to him, apparently, well, how do we know? How do we test? He said, there's one infallible test. One infallible test. That no one, under the influence of an evil spirit, will ever confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And no one under the influence of an evil spirit, will ever admit that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. Now, an ordinary person can say that even though he doesn't believe it. But not so if you're under the dominion of an evil spirit. So there was a safeguard. 1 John 4, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Hereby, Know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. But every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. So we've got these. Well, Then you remember 1 Timothy 3.16 where he says, Uh, looking at the uh, whole of the epistle that God is invisible in chapter 117 that the Lord is invisible in chapter 116 immortal, dwelling in light which no man can approach unto but in the centre of the epistle he says in 1 1 Timothy 3.16 and without controversy great is the mystery of godliness God was manifest in the flesh God was manifest in the flesh. That's the mystery of godliness. No wonder he says it's a great mystery. How can God, whom the heavens cannot contain, how can God ever be manifest in the flesh? Well, you won't expect me to tell you, will you? Because I don't know. All I know is the scripture says, that is the wonder of our redemption. He didn't send an angel. He came, in some way, himself. He came in the likeness of men. He was born of a virgin so that he didn't bring with him the entire of Adamic sin. That's cut right through. He was the one sinless one that was born into this world after the fall of Adam. That's the reason why man is eliminated from the parentage of Christ. Well now there's one or two other features. In um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, there is a, a used in a contrast between the old and the new. Two Corinthians chapter five, verse sixteen. He says, "Wherefore, after all his argument about Christ dying for all and all having died, wherefore henceforth know we know man after the flesh, yea." Though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. This needs to be handled very, very reverently and very, very carefully. But what does it mean? We no longer know Christ after the flesh. Well, the only way you could know Christ after the flesh is to read the Gospel according to Matthew or Mark or Luke particularly. That gives you the record of Christ's life here according or after the flesh. But he says... We no longer know him like that. Why? Well, because he came and died and was buried and was raised and is now ascended and seated. He says, that's what you want to remember. All that was necessary in the preparation that if you're still there, you'll be like the poor son of an Isha woman who had to be content with crumbs that fell from Israel's table. Whereas we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places and those blessings were never on Israel's table. We should have to take this line a bit more more systematically on another occasion. But if we admit, as I think we all do, that the cross is the touchstone of our faith, that we begin at the cross of Christ, we can't begin anywhere else. Well, where does the cross of Christ come in the Gospel according to Matthew? Not till you get to the end chapters. So the Sermon on the Mount was the instructions given to those who never knew that Christ was to die and raise again. Because in Matthew 16, even the Apostle Peter manifested he didn't know a word about that. Don't you see? We've got to be so careful that we don't look at the wrong scripture. We can go to those and get great blessing from them when we know our point of view. But from the moment we put our trust in Christ, we set our affection on things above. So he says, Therefore, verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. You could translate it, there is a new creation. Comes the same thing in the end, because he's dealing with mankind. There is a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And again, that needs a little correction. All things are passed away. Old things, I'm sorry. Old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come into being. It isn't that the old things have been patched up. It's new things take their place. Like in the new heavens and the new earth, old things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And all these things, not all things in general, but all these things, the article is there, all these things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. So there we have it in contrast with the early ministry. It's the risen, ascended, seated Christ who for our sakes died and rose again. And then we have it in contrast with the Spirit. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. All foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. The word evidently set forth could be translated in the modern words, placarded. Because they actually did have placards in the day of, of the Apostle Paul, and stick them on the wall, and there's one in the possession of one of our museums that's been preserved. It says, vote for so and so, he's a good man. He says, I haven't even preached Christ, i placarded him. What's happened to you? And he emphasizes I have the cross of Christ. You know, in this epistle to the Galatians, he said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I've put Christ crucified in front of you to such an extent. What's happened to you? This only would I learn of you. Receive ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Are ye so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect? by the flesh. He says, if you're trying to do that, the cross of Christ can mean nothing to you. For that's the end of the old man and the beginning of the new. So you see, there's a great deal of teaching in this one word in the Apostles' ministry. Chapter five, seventeen. We looked at that just now in our reading. Those of you who are listening to this recording may like to know that we read, as an introductory lesson, Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 to 26. And so in our reading came this verse 17. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other. You cannot mix the flesh and the spirit. They're two different agencies. So that she cannot do the things that she would. And when we were reading it, we drew attention. This doesn't merely and only mean that you cannot do wicked things, then it says you cannot do good things. Either side. You cannot do wicked things if the spirit is, is lusting against the flesh and stopping you, and you cannot do good things if the flesh is lusting against the spirit. So, here is no possible compromise. It's either the one or the other. And then, um, as a result, this comes to mean man's sinful condition. We'll leave out the passage in Romans, and we'll look at Colossians 2.23. Just turn the page to Colossians 2.23. And here we have got a whole series of passages that we shall have to perhaps leave without reading. Colossians 2.23. He has been giving a very difficult line of teaching in this Colossians 2, how they've been led away by a false philosophy how they're even neglecting the body, and what's it doing? He says it's doing nothing save to the satisfying of the flesh. You know, some people, they don't wear hair shirts and flog themselves, perhaps as they did in medieval times, but they think that by abstaining from this and not going there and not doing this, they're making themselves a bit more presentable to God. Or he says, you may be puffing up the poor old man, and says, what a good boy am I. Oh, he says, fancy doing all that. Touch not, taste not, Handle not, which all are to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom, in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor, to the satisfying of the flesh. He gives the true correction, if ye then be risen with Christ, Se- seek those things which are above. And then says, in verse 5, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, From the position of being risen and seated with Christ, you can begin to undertake that awful uh, work, but not in any other sense of flogging the body or neglecting the body or listening to all these teachings that were going about in Colossae. The rest of the passages I leave to you who have this um, study in front of you because of time, and we're now going to turn our attention to the other column and concentrate our attention all the time on Romans 5, to eight, Because running through this section of the epistle to the Romans, there is a very consistent pattern, which is most obviously under the direction of the Spirit of God. The first reference is in chapter 6, 19. Chapter 6, 19. I speak after the manner of men, because of the infirmity of your flesh. The first thing that is said here is not the wickedness, but the weakness. The weakness. He's already touched upon this, if you look back to chapter 5. Chapter 5. He says in uh, verse 10, when we were enemies. He says, in verse 8, while we were yet sinners. But he says, in verse 6, when we were without strength, when we were weak, Christ died for us. Don't you see? You'll be lost if you can't save yourself, if you're weak. Just the same as you'll be lost if you're wicked. From one extreme to the other. So he says, look, the infirmity of your flesh. Now, would you look at this chart and see, chapter 8, verse 3, Run your eye down from the letter A, 619, Weakness, to the letter A, chapter 83, Weakness, and see it repeated in a new context. I think we ought to read perhaps the first three verses. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And the rest of the verse goes out according to the revised text and comes in its right place at the end of verse 4. It's a repetition that should not be there. It's a simple statement. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. Even the law of God, the law that came from God, could not bring about the purposes for which you might say it was designed, simply because the human instrument broke down. It was weak through the flesh. So if anybody thinks he's going to be saved by keeping the law of God, well, he's forgetting the fact that he himself will stultify it, it will be impossible, because the flesh is not able even to sustain that birth. So we've got those two now, balancing one another. Well do we go back again? In chapter 7, verse 8, we have the reference to the passions. What is that? Oh, I'm sorry, yes, 7, verse 5. He says, when we were in the flesh, well now, of course, this man is still alive and walking about, but he says, oh yes, but even though you are still flesh and blood, my brethren, you are not now in the flesh, in that sense, you're in Christ. You're still here with its limitations, but you belong to him. But when we were in the flesh, the motions or the passions of sins, which were by the law, did work in your members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in oldness of letter. So now we see we have the The flesh with its motions or passions. Will you run right down here to the bottom of this chart? Chapter 8, verse 8, and it says, So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. The passions of the flesh are the things that please the flesh, and those that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now we come back again on our story. Chapter 7, verse 18. For I know that in me, now he says that is to say in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. And you haven't got to live very long a Christian life without knowing how true that is. However many resolutions you make, however many times you turn over a new leaf, however many times you get little mottos sent to you by your Christian friends, oh, how difficult it is. He says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. So we've now got here, in this 18th verse but how it's the it's the um in me dwelleth no good thing. The word dwelleth and you look down further and you see in chapter eight verse nine But ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you Oh, look at the two dwellings sin dwelling in you or the Spirit of God dwelling in you. Oh what a difference it makes. You're the same person but a change of masters. I remember, it's a silly story, I remember seeing a leaflet given away in the open air and it spoke about a man who was a very well-known drunkard was walking about with a little motto hanging under his nose. This establishment is under entirely new management. (laughs) Well, it wouldn't be a bad plan, of course, but that wouldn't save him very far. But here it is. That's where we are. We can say in true, in good conscience, This establishment is under entirely new management. Instead of sin dwelling in us and leading us where we would not go, the spirit of Christ dwells in us and leads us where we would wish to go and pleasing him at the same time. And then it says in chapter 7, 25, back again, chapter 7, 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord for his deliverance. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. He saw this conflict going on between in between the two natures in the child of God, which is a very essential doctrine that we should remember. And if you've never read Dr. Bullinger's treatise on it, it's a good thing to start. You may have to go a bit further than he takes you, but it can be obtained through our own booksellers, book sales, the two natures in the child of God. Here is recognised it. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. But there's no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, even so. And so we get now in chapter 8, verse 12 and 13, service again. Chapter 8, uh, 12 and 13, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. But if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Well now, in the um, development of this, there's a big space devoted to this question of the flesh in Romans the 8th chapter, as you see. It occupies a section all to itself. So shall we look, without... um, Stopping to look at all these, you'll watch the chart as we go, you'll see they have a pattern. But let's look at chapter 8 and look right down to about verse 7 where it ends there. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And as I said earlier, it looks as though one of the scribes who was copying this out looked at verse 4 and wrote the words, "...who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit." because we discover that from manuscripts which are now much more authentic and much older than the authorised version knew anything about, they are not there. We are not saved because we walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. It's simply making a statement straight away that if we are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. Now he says, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. There are two laws at work. There's the law of life in Christ and the law of death in the flesh. The one coming from Adam the first, the other coming from Adam the last. Whether you're in one or the other is a matter of life and death. And it's by the preaching of the gospel and believing Christ that the transfer is made. For what the law could not do, even God's holy law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did. did. What what the law couldn't do, God has done. In what way? By sending his own son. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Look at the way in which this now is written. We are distinctly told that he was made flesh. He came in flesh and blood. But we are also distinctly told that he did no sin and he knew no sin. So we mustn't say he was merely in the likeness of flesh, he was in real flesh, but he was in the likeness of sinful flesh, for he knew no sin. He was in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteousness of the law, or the righteous requirement of the law, it might mean, the righteous requirement of the law made upon all sin, should be fulfilled in us, Because he undertook for us. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For they that are after the flesh, do mind the things of the flesh. And they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be minding the flesh, carnally minded. See, the sudden change of the word, carnally, may make you think that the word is changed. To have a fleshly mind is death. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind, the mind of the flesh, is not merely at enmity, but is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. How foolish it is to waste your time trying to renovate and to patch up the old man. The only thing to do with the old man is to remember, if you look back in chapter 6, verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. That's the only thing to do with it. Reckon that what God has reckoned, that he's been put to death, and now you have a new life in Christ. Because the carnal mind, the mind of the flesh, is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Well now, I don't know how it strikes you who are listening, it has been a pretty difficult set of studies to take, isn't it? And you may say, well, I I don't think I've grasped it. Well, don't be uh, upset over that. Few of us have grasped it. But when you come to think that our Saviour, he didn't have to look words about flesh and all its propensities. He took upon himself flesh and blood that he might deliver us from this bondage. Go over it again and again and again if needs be so that when you do speak about it to others you will give wise direction and not make mistakes that so often made. So I commend this study once again to those of you either for your own sakes or for the sakes of others who are under your care, that you remember that this is a key word in the apostles' teaching, and it's worth any amount of brain sweat and careful examination, so that when you direct, you'll direct in the right way and not lead astray. Remember the flesh, profit is nothing. So far as the flesh is concerned, it's crucified with Christ. They that are Christ have crucified the flesh, with its affections and desires. And a new nature, guided by the Spirit of God, and fed by the teaching of the Word, is our only hope of triumph in this world, as it must be when it's realised in its fullness in the day to come.